morning. morning. Welcome to Barah Ministries, an intimate local Christian church with worldwide impact. My name is Pastor Rory Clark. Welcome to this Bible lesson. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 4, give us comfort. They say every believer in Christ is to be in subjection to the civil authorities who are in power. For there is no civil authority in power except ones that were put in power by God the Father. And those civil authorities which exist in power are established by God the Father. They are not established by policies. They are not established by human beings. They are established by God because nothing happens in the universe without God's permission. Romans chapter 13, verse 2, Therefore, whoever rebels against authority has rebelled against the ordinance of God. And they, have opposed, they who have opposed the ordinance of God are rebelling against God as well, and they will receive both divine and civil condemnation upon themselves. Romans chapter 13, verse 3, For rulers and authority are not a cause of fear for those who have good behavior, for those who obey the law, but rulers are a cause of fear for those who indulge in evil, those who disobey the law. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Keep on doing what is good, and you will have praise from the authority. Romans 13:4. For the authority is a minister of God, given as a grace gift to you for your own good. But if you keep on doing what is evil, be afraid. For the authority does not keep on bearing the sword, that's firearms and capital punishment, for nothing. For the authority is God's ministering officer, an avenger who brings wrath, that's punishment for wrongdoing, on the one who practices evil. In his perfect wisdom, God has placed believers in Christ in Satan's kingdom to influence it for the good as ambassadors for Christ. And what is an ambassador? It's somebody who goes to a foreign kingdom and represents his sovereign. We, as believers in Christ, are in Satan's kingdom representing our sovereign, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. An election doesn't change anything for believers in Christ. It especially doesn't change God's impact on our lives. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says this, as, believers, as we believers in Christ and we believers in Christ know that God the Father causes all things to work together for good to those who love God the Father, to those who are called according to God the Father's purpose. We press on, knowing that our God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Nothing has changed for us. At Barah Ministries, we know this truth, that Jesus Christ is God. As the Lord, he is 100% deity. He is God the Son, a member of the triune Godhead. He is also 100% human, just like you and me, and his name is Jesus Christ. The Lord, God the Son, became flesh, Jesus Christ, and he tabernacled among us. He is the uniquely born one, 100% God and 100% man in one person forever. He is the sovereign God of the universe. He is the Jewish Messiah. And at Barah Ministries, we make a difference by teaching the Word of God from God's perspective and not from man's perspective. And one of the things you get when you read Facebook and Instagram is man's perspective. And I tell you that the people who write opinions on Instagram and Facebook, most of them should be embarrassed 
that they would dare to put the garbage that's in their head in writing so that everybody could inspect it. And they could read it over and over again and see how absolutely stupid they are with the emotional crap that they write that has no thought content whatsoever. We don't do that here at Barah Ministries. What we do is we make a difference by learning what God's perspective of life is, and it is a completely opposite viewpoint of what we think virtually all the time. And as those who make Barah Ministries our spiritual home, we are Christians. And being a Christian means that we believe in the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have a deep, intimate, personal relationship with him. We don't think he was just a good teacher. We don't think he was just a good rabbi. We don't think he was just uh, a good prophet. We think he is God. He is completely different from Joseph Smith, from the Pope, from Allah, from Buddha, and from all the other pretenders who claim to be spiritual. He is God in human form as Jesus Christ in one person forever, and nothing happens in the universe without his permission. Now, God has an enemy, Satan, whom God made the ruler of this world. About 90% of the people in the world don't believe that Satan exists. They believe that evil is a concept and that Satan is a concept. He is not. He is a being, a created being who is a liar, a treacherous traitor who turned on his leader. He deceives the whole world, including you and me. He doesn't want us to get to know God. And he interferes with our chance to know God. And his strategy against the human race is religion, which is designed to make us either indifferent or antagonistic to God, making us turn our our focus to things that are meaningless and away from things that are most important. If you think about all the things you do in your life, what is more important than a relationship with Jesus Christ and hearing his word? Okay, it can be answered in a word. What's the word? Nothing. Nothing is the word. There's nothing more important than that. Yet, when you examine how you use your 168 hours a week, how much of that time is dedicated to getting to know the Lord, who he is as a person, and looking at his word? Not much. I'm a pastor, and I give about 25 of those hours. Can't imagine what it's like for you. So, This is important, what we do here. Religion deceives people into thinking they're saved when they're not. And when you lose three very important people to you in a week, your mind shifts to what's next. What's next for you? Because, see... One of the, there's a great verse in Ecclesiastes, and it says, because the sentence of your crimes aren't executed immediately, men are just predisposed to do evil. See, kids are brilliant, because if a kid sticks, you tell the kid, don't stick your hand in the cookie jar. And they stick their hand in the cookie jar, and you catch them, and you slam the cookie jar on their hands, they're smart. Kids ain't going to put their hands in the cookie jar again. But if you're not there, and they pick up the cookie jar, and they put their hand in, and they get, yeah, they, they do it. They do it. You looked at it. Mom looked at it. Do you, do, you, do, you, do you put your hand in that cookie jar when mom's not around? Right? All the time. So when nobody's around, 
They stick their hand in the cookie jar and they take it and nothing comes down on their hands and see and they think, wow, I got away with it. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. Not in God's program. So there are a lot of people when I talk to them about God and his word, they, they got their face and oh, I don't know how somebody as smart as you could be so ridiculous. I can't tell you how many times I, I think about one friend that I evangelized to him. He said, Jesus Christ is not God. I showed him a hundred different verses in three hours that the Bible makes it unequivocal that Jesus Christ is God. And he said, well, I study the Bible all the time. I never saw that. What were you looking at? He wasn't looking at Jesus Christ as God. He was looking at Allah. He's a Muslim. He thinks Allah is God. Allah does not exist. So he isn't seeing the truth. He doesn't want to see it. No matter what I say to him, he doesn't want to see it. But there's going to be a day when he's going to be standing in front of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of us are. What's it going to be like then? You're going to get your face? <laughs> You're not going to get the face. You're not even going to be able to look at him. Your face is going to be on the ground. You're going to be in front of royalty. So, you know, we don't take this stuff seriously while we're here. We cookie jar it. Well, religion works. Well, the word of God is truth. And it informs us about Satan's insidious deceptions. And as believers in Christ, we're in union with Christ, and we have the victory over Satan through our Lord who has overcome the world. Today's Bible lesson, the Lord always handles disunity. The Lord always handles disunity. Well, it's been peculiar over the last year or so to hear people bleeding about disunity here in the United States. Disunity has been a hallmark of life in this country during my entire lifetime. In America, we are united in name only. There is little that reflects genuine unity. In fact, looking at things through spiritual eyes, empathy for others is almost non-existent. Most don't really care about what others think. Most don't listen to others. So how could there be unity without empathy and a listening ear? This is especially true in family relationships where we don't value the people in our family. We don't listen to people in our family. We don't treat people in our family particularly well. And we don't uh, communicate to people who have made sacrifices for us that we value them. So disunity didn't start in the United States over the last four years. It is the methodology of Satan's kingdom because the enemy of God is the most divisive being to ever live. How could a kingdom that he runs be different than that? We're studying the Apostle Paul's first letter to believers in first century Corinth, and the theme of the letter is disunity. The Lord always deals harshly with disunity, and in today's lesson, we'll get a glimpse of how he does it. And in addition, we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper, our monthly reminder about our unity with the Lord Jesus Christ and with each other. So let's hear some music now that all the heavy stuff is gone. Amen? <laughs> I'm sorry, you guys. I'm sorry I'm so harsh today. I got some sleep. I actually finished my lesson early. And I got a little sleep, and I'm always a little crazier when I get some sleep. Amen? All right, so let's hear some music. God the Father loves you.
And when you have concerns, he wants you to come to him with your problems because God considers your problems to be his responsibility. The Lord explains in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 11, he says this, Keep on asking, and it will be given to you. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and it will be opened to you. The Lord admires persistence. Matthew chapter 7, verse 8, For everyone who asks, receives from the Lord. Everyone who seeks, finds because of the Lord. And to him who knocks, it will be opened by the Lord. Matthew 7, 9. Or what person is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf of bread, will give his son a stone? Matthew 7, 10. Or if his son asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? I might. Amen? I got two boys. I might. <laughs> Matthew seven eleven. So if you, as a human being, despite being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who's in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Well, Phillips, Craig, and Dean sing it perfectly. How deep the Father's love for us. Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that He should give His only Son, and make a wretch His treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns His face away. As wounds which mar the chosen one Bring many sons to glory
Let us pray. We're grateful, Heavenly Father, for the privilege of studying your absolute truth, the Word of God. Father, thank you for telling us the truth. Thank you for not letting us be deluded into thinking that our success as a society and as individuals depends on people. We know that it depends on you. Thank you for letting us know that you are on our side regardless of circumstances, and since you are for us, no one can be successful against us. Father, let the adversity we have in store in this country lead people to you. Give us the courage to proclaim the good news about your Son and our Lord, Jesus Christ, in a tyrant's kingdom. Help us to lift our voices in a godless place. Make our voices heard and let our voices reverberate throughout the world. We ask this through the power of God, the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, say it with me. Amen. Today's Bible lesson, the Lord always handles disunity. The Lord always handles disunity. How appropriate that we should be talking about disunity on a day when we celebrate unity. And that's what the Lord's Supper is. The Lord's Supper is a day that we celebrate unity. And the Lord asks us to come back and celebrate that unity every month because as human beings we forget. We let ourselves get distracted by the things that are meaningless and we forget that we are in union with each other. And it shouldn't, but it does always require a crisis for us to realize that we have people standing next to us and that we don't do anything alone. And that, in fact, we can't do anything alone. And, in fact, we have never done anything alone. You can't even breathe alone. The breathing is an involuntary reflex which God built into you knowing that you would be so stupid one day that you would hold your breath and try to kill yourself and you can't even do it because it's, it's an involuntary mechanism that shows the, the amazingness of this God we have. So we continue our study of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse by verse next week. But as we study this passage, you will notice this structure that from the passage we're on is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 34. The first part of that passage, which we studied a couple weeks ago, was the people abuses that were going on in the church at Corinth. And the essence of that was elitism. There were wealthy people who were lording their wealth over poor people in the congregation. That is not in line with the way the Lord thinks of things. He does not think that there is the elite And there's the rest of you guys. He thinks whosoever, who can be saved, whosoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. That means everyone. Even people who hate the Lord Jesus Christ can be saved. He went to a cross to pay for the sins of people who would never in their entire lifetime acknowledge him as God. So the people abuses was the first part of this passage. Last week we studied the tradition that is celebrated in the church, and that tradition is the Lord's Supper. And we talked about the idea of sacrifice because there are many things that the cross calls us to and asks us to look at, but the one thing is sacrifice. And here's my question for you. What are you like with the people who have sacrificed for you? When you think about people who have sacrificed for you, that is, put themselves on the line for you, like Jesus Christ did. He died for you so that you wouldn't have to because you were guilty of something and you were going to die for it. 
And he stood in and took your place. What are you like when somebody makes a sacrifice for you? Somebody who demonstrates selflessness. Somebody who puts themselves on the line so that you don't have to. What are you like? And the Lord's Supper is that celebration. And then the third part of the structure you'll notice, and what I'm about to read to you is the, is the next part, which was Paul's recommended solution for the abuses. And Paul's going to teach us how to treat people. Do you know how to treat people? Do you know how to treat people selflessly? Or do you treat people, are you coin-operated? Do you treat people how they treat you? Or do you go out of your way for people? The final section of this passage are Paul's suggestions to the believers in Corinth. And we'll hear it today, and then we'll study the verses next week. Now, in the coming days, we're going to see quite a bit of ungracious conduct in our country. And those who claim to be for unity, who've been clamoring about how we needed unity, are going to be acting in a very disunified way. And they will continue their slanderous and libelous diatribes against our president. And they will engage in the very conduct that they claim to detest. As believers in Christ, we will be not be moved by their insensitivity. We will not be persuaded by their utopian philosophy that has proved itself over and over again to be a lie for years in country after country after country after country. The utopia that people espouse has been proven to be alive for years. Alive for years that if you give people fish, one day it will inspire them to want to learn how to fish. That has never been the case. It happens one out of ten times. It's never been the case. And the Lord makes it perfectly clear in here that it has never been the case. Judas was one of the big proponents, one of the first proponents of that, Judas Iscariot. And he was always, he was the treasurer of the disciples. And he was always telling them, why, why are you using that perfume to, to anoint Jesus Christ? Why are you putting that perfume on him? We could sell that perfume and give to the poor. And Jesus said, there are always going to be poor people. She's the only one who took care of the person who's making a sacrifice for her. How about you, man? And what he was really saying to him is, do you think I'm omniscient? Do you think I don't know you're stealing (laughs) from the treasury, man? You're talking all this stuff out of this side of your mouth and out of the other side of your mouth. It's a whole other message coming out, a whole other set of actions. And nobody likes people who are talking all this stuff and their actions say other stuff. And people aren't stupid. You know, one of the great things about being outside of other people and looking at them is you have a different perspective than they have of life. They look out this way. But you're looking over here, and you're looking at them, and they think they're conning you, and they aren't. They're not good enough. If you're paying attention, people can't con you after you get over 40 years old. You've been conned enough, right? Now, you guys, we con you all day. Amen? Right, Cody? I can con you, can I? <laughs> Just shut up and give me a video game, man. So, you're going to see this conduct, but you're not going to be moved by it. 
because we are not moved or persuaded as Christians because our Lord and His Word are giving us spiritual eyes and that paints an entirely different picture for us. So the con artists who are talking to people who are spiritual, we're looking at them and we're hearing, you know, we're, they're like Charlie Brown's teacher to us. Wah, 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 wah. We see through the con game. Now, by studying this passage in 1 Corinthians, we know that we are not the first group of people in human history who have mistreated each other. Many of the believers in the first century church at Corinth claim to be for unity with their mouths, just as Christians would, since we're placed into a state of unity as the body of Christ by our God, who is the head. Yet their conduct was the opposite. It was destructive. They were di- there were divisions, there were rivalries, just as there are today in our world. And even Paul's best rebukes, even Paul's best appeals, did not affect these people. But God always affects us. So let's read this passage, then we'll transition to the Lord's Supper, and then we'll study this passage next week. But what I want you to hear as you listen to this passage is how does the Lord deal with it when people mistreat each other? Here's what it says. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, and it's called the bread and the cup of the Lord, celebrated at the Lord's Supper. Whoever does that in an unworthy manner shall be liable for the body and the blood of the Lord. What does that tell you? That tells you that nobody gets away with anything in God's plan. There's no escaping the cookie jar in God's plan. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28. But a man must examine himself And in so doing, he is to eat the bread and drink the cup. That's one of the things that the Lord's Supper is all about. We stop to examine ourselves. We stop to examine how we are toward unity. 1 Corinthians 11, 29. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he doesn't judge the body rightly. And what does it mean to judge the body rightly? It's to treat people around you with the respect that they deserve, whether they've earned it or not. 1 Corinthians 11.30 For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number are dying. One of the things that God uses to get our attention is sickness and dying. Dying really gets your attention, amen? (laughs) Cancel Christmas. Nice knowing you. 1 Corinthians 11.31 But if we were examining ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. See, that's what God wants. He wants to transfer life into us. He wants to transfer examination into us. See, that's what I love about having you guys come here every week and hear these messages. I like seeing how big your eyeballs get because I know what it means when your eyeballs get big. What it means is you start, you're going through this whole inventory in your head of your week and of your life. And you're saying, how did I, how did I treat my friends this week? How did I treat my kids this week? How did I treat my spouse this week? What relationships do I have in my life? How much do I value them? Who are the people who have sacrificed for me? 
what have I done to demonstrate to them my gratitude and to let them know that I care about them? What have I done? And it's okay because this is only a two-hour experience, right? You can run the hell out of here as fast as you can. You can carb up because we always we have such a kind person in Denise who brings us all these carbs so we can medicate our feelings. And then we can run back out into the world and get back out into, there, into the meaninglessness as fast as possible. We only have to take two hours of this. But this is the essence of life. This is the two hours that matters about life. And we won't stand before those phony teachers who are giving us panaceas that come right out of the world for how we ought to live our lives and how we ought to examine ourselves. We're going to reject that. We're we're done with the Joel Osteens of the world who now has a little device that you press it and he gives you some human viewpoint. For $49.95, I'm going to make one of those too. It's going to be divine viewpoint. It's going to be $10. Amen? Go ahead. Who wants one? I'm taking advanced orders right now. I got Anybody got a pen? You can hear my voice all the time. You can have it in your car. He's only got 20 things on his. I'm going to have 150 things on mine. Amen? You can hear me 150 times a week. Amen? Amen. <laughs> no, please don't. Stop. <laughs> Oh, jeez. 1 Corinthians, <laughs> Corinthians 11.32. When we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Why does the Lord discipline his believers? He doesn't punish. He disciplines. What does discipline mean? It means training in a character pattern. He trains us in a character pattern. What character pattern? How to think how to think in a conformed way, in a transformed way, not in a conformed way. Why does the Lord discipline us? He is the equivalent of those little little circles on the highway. When you drift out of your lane, woo, 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 he, he gently drifts you back into the lane. That's what discipline is from the Lord. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty three. So then, my brethren, believers in Christ, When you come together to eat, wait for one another. Don't have nine of you go in the triclinium room, the elite room, and be looking back into the atrium with the poor folk. Don't go in the room with all the the luxurious, lavish food and wine and look back at the people who are drinking the ripple, amen? You know, ripple is screw top. 1 Corinthians 11.34 And if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you'll not come together for judgment. And the remaining matters about how you're handling the Lord's Supper, I'll talk to you about that when I get over there. Paul was so mad he had to come over. Well, we come together as believers in Christ to soul search. That's why we come here. Out in the world, we kid ourselves. But when we hear the word of God, we can't kid ourselves. The word of God shines a mirror in your face. The Corinthian believers were engaging in the despicable conduct of elitism. And some members of the church thought they were better than others. And this same elitism is woven into the fabric of our society. It is buried deep in our minds through the influence of the ruler of this world. And we're always judging people. We're walking down the street and we look at somebody and they're a little overweight and say, oh, that's fat. 
They're fat. Or they're ugly. Or look at those clothes. Look at those shoes. They're not as good as me. That's what is always implied by the judging. They're not as good as me. Oh, look at the homeless person. Why can't he get a job? Maybe he's smarter than all of us. Maybe there's nothing so wonderfully glorious about having a mortgage. Amen? And in Phoenix, the weather ain't that bad. It ain't that bad here. Now, a homeless person in Chicago is crazy. Certifiably crazy. But a homeless person in Arizona, that ain't that bad. I've considered it. Well, this same elitism is woven into the fabric of our society, and it hardens us to others. It robs us of compassion and empathy. And it robs us of our spiritual lives and our compassion for others. And let me tell you something about compassion. You know, my version of compassion is I will be almost unlimitedly generous with people. But when I am, they owe me something. You know what they owe me? They're best. You know why I come here and teach you guys every week? Because I demand your best. I want your best. When you're here for this two hours, I want your concentration. And when you go out from here, I want you to be a reflection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I want you talking to people about Jesus Christ. I want you showing him who he is through your life. I demand stuff of you. This isn't not just getting up here to give you this for free so you can go out and go do what they, the world wants you to do. I want something in return. To sin against others is to sin against Christ. The Lord does not respect mistreatment of others, nor does he respect disunity. Self-indulgent behavior does not belong in a church. What is God's attitude toward profaning the Lord's Supper celebration? We'll take a look at that next week as we study this passage. All right, so let's go on to the Lord's Supper celebration. At the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ taught us sacrifice. At the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ taught us sacrifice. Welcome to the Lord's Supper celebration, which is the most intimate expression of our deep, intimate, and loving personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord reminds us of the unity we all have by sharing his body and his blood with us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, the Apostle Paul says on behalf of the Lord, As often as you eat this bread, representing his body, and as often as you drink this cup, representing his blood, as part of the Lord's Supper celebration, you proclaim as a reality and you announce the significance of the Lord Jesus Christ's death on the cross, and his resurrection from the dead until he comes again in the second coming. So every month we celebrate the Lord's Supper to remember. We remember that we're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, dependent on him for our so great salvation. You cannot save yourself. We remember that we believers in Christ are in union with Christ, and we can't get out of our union with him. I had somebody telling me this weekend that, she was told by this cult that she's in that she can lose her salvation by sinning. Is that true? No, you can't lose your salvation. What part of John 10, 28 don't we understand? I give eternal life to believers in Christ and they will never perish. And no one shall snatch them out of my hands. No one can sever us 
from the unconditional love of God the Father, which comes from being in union with Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. We are in union with Christ, and it looks like this. At the moment of salvation, through the baptism of the Spirit, we're placed in union with Christ, and we can't wrestle our way out. And it happens in a single decision, in a moment in time, that we decide to believe in Christ, and we can't get out. Ever. It's amazing. One second, five word, nine word, great decision lasts for an eternity. Amazing, this God we have. When we come together for the Lord's Supper, we remember that the Lord loves us unconditionally. There are no words to describe the way he loves us. And we remember that we are forgiven for every sin we commit, past, present, and future. Forgiven in the past. You don't have to ask God to forgive you anymore. He already did it. If you got an ice cream cone, you don't ask for an ice cream cone because you already got it. It looks kind of stupid, doesn't it? You're already forgiven. That's the ice cream cone. And now you're going to ask for God, forgive me. You already got the ice cream cone. Eat it. And we remember that we have the Lord's grace to help in times of need, especially when we make mistakes, which we always do. The Lord's Supper celebration is often called communion. It's our chance to commune with the Lord as we remember him, a chance to bring to our consciousness our fellowship with him. It's a sacred celebration, so it's not something we take for granted. It's not something we do on the fly. It's a time to have bread and wine in front of us, and as we enjoy the elements, we remember our dependence on the Lord Jesus Christ, both for our physical sustenance and for our spiritual sustenance. During the Lord's Supper celebration, Jesus wants his believers to look back. We look back to the cross to remember how he rescued us from the kingdom of darkness. We remember the sacrifice of his shedding blood to cover our sins. We remember the deliverance to the resurrection life he orchestrated, bringing us into his kingdom of light. And during the Lord's Supper celebration, Jesus wants his believers to look forward as well in anticipation that he is coming again. So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we ask ourselves in reflection, what did the Lord Jesus Christ do for us at the cross? And this month we acknowledge that at the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ taught us sacrifice. So when we return from our five-minute break, we'll take the offering, and then we'll see a picture of the Lord's sacrifices painted for us by Scripture. Take a five-minute break. Why you ever chose me Has always been a mystery All my life I've been told I belong At the end of the line With all the other not quite With all the never get it right But it turns out they're the ones you were looking for all this time Cause I'm just a nobody Trying to tell all about somebody who saved my soul Ever since you rescued me You gave my heart a song to sing I'm living for the world to see Nobody but Jesus I'm living for the world to see Nobody but Jesus 
stage fright And David brought a rock to a sword fight You picked 12 outsiders nobody would have chosen And you changed the world Well, the moral of the story is Everybody's got a purpose So when I hear that devil start talking to me Saying, who do you think you are? I say, I'm just a nobody
Welcome back. The Lord's Supper celebration at the cross. The Lord Jesus Christ taught us sacrifice. At the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ taught us sacrifice. Well, our Heavenly Father knows everything, owns everything in the universe, including you. And he gives all that he has to us. King David reflects on that in Psalm 24, verse 1, which says, The earth is the Lord's, and all the earth contains is the Lord's, even the world and those who live in it. Easy to forget that, isn't it? Easy to forget that and think that people somehow have power when God can turn off their light at any moment. Well, let's keep on sharing what the Lord gives us with others. Let's welcome up Deacon Denny Goodall with the offering message. Good morning. morning. My name is Denny Goodall, and I'm blessed to be a deacon for Barah Ministries. Barah Ministries is a worldwide church. It's a place where real people come to listen to a real pastor teach the real truth from the Word of God. And last week, Pastor mentioned that sacrifice was more than just a word. And that really kind of stuck with me, and I thought, you know, there's a lot of words we say in life that are just words because we don't put more into it. And I was thinking at work, we, we have a lot of safety protocols at work. And we have, we have uh, commercial jobs. We have to wear high-visibility shirts and hard hats. and We have to have jeans on, and you got to put boots on, and steel-toe boots. And at our shop, normally, we're wearing shorts, T-shirts, and tennis shoes. And so when they come around, we don't look like the place of safety. <laughs> so they, were, they actually came around. We had a new mortgage. So they came around and asked us some questions like, oh, what are you guys' first steps in case of fire? And we were like, very fast. <laughs> and they were like, nah, that's not funny. <laughs> They don't really think any of those jokes are funny. But I was thinking, you know, if, if we have safety in our life, then God must have safety for us too. God must, he's the one that starts all things. So what, is, what does God have to say or what does the Bible have to say about safety? And I was thinking, <clears throat> I saw Proverbs chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. The Lord stores up wisdom for the upright. He is a shield for those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice, and the Lord watches over the way of his godly ones. So he keeps us safe, right? It's a lot like the, uh, well, there's one way to heaven. It makes it pretty easy. It makes it pretty safe to find a way there. It's a lot like the high visibility shirts. You see it and you know what to do. Um, and then you've got, of course, the Bible. It's our, this is our textbook to life. Easy, easy to see. It keeps us covered. It's like the jeans and the hard hat. And the boots, it's got us covered. Every, every, every situation in life is covered in there. And then you think about who ultimately keeps us the safest, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? He is the one that keeps us safe because he paid the ransom for our death certificate. And it's really amazing. You think about a lot of things in life kind of, they always come back to, the, they always come back to, one, way to one way to heaven through Christ, and the Bible supports all that. So I was joking that I'm OCB now. Not OCD, I'm OCB. One way to heaven, through Christ, and I use the Bible. So it's funny that, you know, safety is more than a word. It's a way of life. And that's just like, we are the safety for the world. When we go out there, we're what the world sees. We're the ambassadors. We're the visibility of Christ. So we're the ones that help people safely find the one way to Christ and and find the Bible. And so that's why it's so important that you come each week is because you learn how to talk to people. You learn how to tell people about Christ. We learn about Christ. So thank you for always coming, and thank you always for supporting 
our pastor, and ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ. So thank you. Supper celebration at the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ taught us sacrifice. The Lord Jesus Christ taught us sacrifice. Well, welcome to the Lord's Supper celebration, which is the most intimate expression of our deep, intimate, and loving personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. What is sacrifice? Pay real close attention to this definition. Sacrifice is the surrender of something prized for the sake of something considered more valuable. It's to take on a disadvantage to advantage someone or something else. That's an amazing definition. I'm going to read it again, just so you can let it sink in. Sacrifice is the surrender of something you prize for the sake of something you consider more valuable, something that you prize even more. It's to take, take on a disadvantage to advantage someone or something else. And I want you thinking about who the people are that live that definition in your life. 
who are the people in your life that surrendered something they prize for the sake of something that's even more valuable? What did the Lord Jesus Christ prize? He prized his deity. He was sitting on the throne of the universe. He is the sovereign God of the universe. He created all things, and nothing happens in this universe without his permission. What did Jesus Christ value more than his deity? He valued you more than his deity. You see, when he went to the cross, if it had been just for you that he had to die, to pay for your sins so that you would have the chance not to die, he would have gone just for you alone. That's how amazing the Lord Jesus Christ is. He valued you more than he valued his deity. He did not consider the fact that he was equal to God the Father as a thing to be seized and held. But instead, he emptied himself of the rightful function of deity for the purpose of taking on the form of a man, humiliating himself by doing that, so that that human body could go to a cross and in three hours pay for the sins of everyone, believer and unbeliever alike, so that everyone would have a chance to be saved. That's sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says this, We believers in Christ are to keep on fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. He is the one who pioneered the path that he wants us to follow in faith. Who for the joy set before him, what a way to describe the cross. Describing the cross as the joy set before him. Well, there is nothing joyous about being crucified. That is the worst, worst death in human history. If I described it for you, you would vomit. Who for the joy before, set before him, becoming the propitiation for your sins, the only perfectly sac- satisfactory payment for sins. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame of the cross, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God the Father. That is sacrifice. The Lord sacrificed himself, giving up his very person for you. He considered you more important than his person. When there was really no reason that he needed to do that. What did the Lord Jesus Christ do for you? He did everything for you. He sacrificed everything for you. And as a result, Jesus Christ is not interested in being a part of your life. He is our life. John chapter 10, verse 10, he says it. He says, I, the Lord Jesus Christ, came so that believers in Christ would have the resurrection life, eternal life, the Zoe life, and have it abundantly. That's what he wants. Zoe, Z-O-E, the Greek word for the resurrection life. The Greek word for eternal life. One of my favorite Greek words, Zoe. You know any people named Zoe? Now you can tell them, well, you know what your name means. It's like, wait a minute, who, who has that? Eusebia. There was, there was a young lady that came here named Eusebia, and her name is Eusebia, which is the Greek word for the spiritual life. And so, of course, I... Did you know what your name means? She didn't know. But it's awesome. Anyway, Jesus Christ was all sacrifice. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 5 says this, The Lord was pierced through 
for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. He was beaten and beaten and beaten and beaten physically for you. Amen? Hallelujah. Oh, glory. The Lord was innocent. He did nothing wrong, yet he endured the sacrifice of being punished as if he were a criminal for you because cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. Anyone who was crucified was considered to be the worst criminal in a society. He did that. He endured that for you. Luke chapter 23 verse 4 says this, Pontius Pilate said to the chief priests and to the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. You know why he said that? Because there was no guilt in this man. He didn't do anything wrong. The Lord's sacrifice was to endure the punishment that was due to us because of our sin. Because at physical birth, we were imputed Adam's original sin. And that meant that we were sentenced to the lake of fire from birth. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says this, For the earned wages of sin, the compensation paid for Adam's original sin and for your lifestyle of sin, as unbelievers, is the second death in the lake of fire. You come here physically alive, but spiritually dead, and on the way to the lake of fire. But the free and gracious gift of God the Father is eternal life, the resurrection life, the Zoe life, in union with Christ Jesus our Lord. So there's the contrast. You can have the life you came here with, or you can have the Zoe life, your choice. And what sits between those two lives is your conversation with God the Father that tells him that you want to be saved. The Lord begged God the Father to be a sacrifice on our behalf so that the Father would have mercy on us. It was funny, I went with a bunch of people to see The Passion of the Christ when it came out, that Mel Gibson movie. And there were about 10 of us, and we're all leaving, and the nine of them are crying. (laughs) I said, what are you guys crying about? I can't believe what they did to our Lord. It was just awful. I said, he volunteered for that. Why are you bothered by something that he wasn't bothered by? He volunteered for that. He knew exactly what was going to happen to him. How would you like that? How would you like to know that you're going to be dead in two years? Deader than a doornail. He knew. And he still did it. We don't have to feel sorry for the Lord. That was the joy that was set before him. He volunteered for it. He wanted to do it. You know why he wanted to do it? For you. Sacrifice. It's amazing. He begged the Father to do it because he wanted his Father to have mercy on us because we were, when we were in Adam's sin, we were not reconciled. We had an enmity between us and God the Father. And he begged his Father, let me take it on for them. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 12 says this, Therefore I, God the Father, will allot to Jesus Christ a portion with the great. He took on that sacrifice, and now he is great in my mind, the Father said about Christ. And he will divide the booty of a conquering general with the strong. 
in Roman times, when a Roman general would conquer a land, they would take all the possessions of the people they conquered. They would walk their generals back into Rome with all the possessions, and all those possessions were at the disposal of the generals. And then they would take the generals of the land they conquered and execute them publicly in the square. And then the general would hand out the booty. That's what Jesus Christ is going to do in the future. He is going to slaughter all of the unbelievers on the earth and give them what they've asked him for, which is the lake of fire. Because there's only one way to get to the lake of fire, and that's to reject a relationship with Christ. Do so at your peril. Therefore, I, God the Father, will allot to Jesus Christ a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty of a conquering general with the strong. The strong are believers in Christ. Because Jesus poured out himself like a drink offering to death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. He was considered a criminal when he did nothing wrong. And yet he himself still, even though he was wronged, even though it was unjust how he was treated, bore the sin of many and interceded for the tra- even for the transgressors. Even for the transgressors, he died. What an amazing God. The Lord, his sacrifice expiated us. Expiation. That ought to send you scurrying to your dictionary. What is expiation? He made amends for our wrongdoing. That's not what usually happens, is it? Usually when you you do something wrong, you have to quote-unquote redeem yourself. You have to expiate yourself. The Lord did it for us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 tells us how he did it. The Lord Jesus Christ himself bore our sins in his own body on the cross so that we might die to the sovereignty of sin and so that we might live to absolute righteousness. At the moment of salvation, God credits absolute righteousness to your account. That's your admission ticket to heaven. For by his wounds, by his stirpes, you were healed. Because of the Lord's sacrifice, we are restored to a completely new status. How were you at birth? You were a scumbag at birth. Everybody was tickling your chin and going, the baby's so cute. You were a scumbag at birth. You were physically alive and spiritually dead and sentenced to the lake of fire. But because of the Lord's sacrifice for us, we were completely restored to a brand new status. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in union with Christ, and all believers in Christ are from the moment of their salvation, there is a new creation. It is not that he took the old you and put lipstick on the pig. He did not do that. He completely killed the old you and completely made a new you. A new you that will never die a new you that will withstand the explosion of the current earth and the universe when it's blown up, a new you that will live in eternity face-to-face with the Lord when you close your eyes in this life. If anyone is in union with Christ, there is a new creation. The old things passed away. They died. That's where we get that term, passed away from. He passed. That means he died. Behold, new things have come. The Lord's sacrifice was to empty himself so that we might become full. 
Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, the Lord Jesus Christ humiliated himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Lord sacrificed by allowing himself to be taken into custody, to be judged. He allowed himself to be turned over to corrupt governmental authorities on our behalf. Romans chapter 5, verse 25 says this, The Lord Jesus Christ, who was delivered over because of our transgressions and who was raised from the dead in resurrection because of our need for justification. What is justification? That is the forensic, legal declaration that you are righteous. If you're a believer in Christ, God the Father goes through the halls of heaven every day announcing your name as legally righteous, as a person who will be joining the party in heaven. And he's telling them about you every day. That's justification. The Lord was obedient to the unreasonable request of his Father to be a sin sacrifice on our behalf. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says this. I smile whenever I read this verse. God the Father demonstrates his own unconditional love toward all mankind. And while we were yet sinners, while we were unbelieving, unrighteous, ungodly unbelievers, the Lord Jesus Christ died for us, a sacrifice in our place. The Lord Jesus Christ sacrificed his perfect, made once and good enough for all time. The Roman Catholics don't believe that. They say that the priest at the altar keeps on helping Jesus Christ in the work of redemption. Yeah, not. Jesus Christ said at the cross, Tetelestai, it is finished. Sacrifice is made once, it stands finished forever, and it is finished for all time. Good enough. For one time, for all time. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says this. Christ died for sins once for all. The just being a sacrifice for the unjust so that Jesus might bring us to God the Father in reconciliation, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. The Lord became a sin sacrifice for us. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God the Father made the Lord Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, perfect, to be a sin sacrifice on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God the Father in union with Him. At the moment of salvation, you become righteous. Your admission ticket to heaven is righteousness. And if you are a believer in Christ right this minute, you are absolutely righteous. If you go to Home Depot and get a black light, and shine it across your head, you will see a plus R stenciled to your head. Absolutely righteous. Amen? As a, resort, as a result, don't go to Home Depot, okay? Those black lights are expensive. Just come over to my house. I'll do it for you. As a result of the Lord's sacrifice, God the Father sees us differently. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says this, Just as God the Father chose us believers in Christ to be in union with Christ before the foundation of the world, why would he do that? Because he knew you were going to believe, and he chose us to be in union with Christ before the foundation of the world, because he has a plan, and that's part of it. 
that we believers in Christ would be holy and blameless before God the Father. The moment you are saved, God the Father looks at you like you don't look at yourself. You didn't get up this morning, go to the mirror, and say, Hello, you holy and blameless one. You got up and went, Oh, God. Ugh. Wiping all that stuff, getting all that snot out of your eyes and stuff. But God the Father didn't see you that way. God the Father saw that when you got up, he said, look at my holy and blameless one. I love her. I love him. (sighs) Isn't that awesome? The only person that loves like that is a mom. It's beautiful. What is sacrifice? The surrender of something prized for the sake of something considered more valuable. The voluntary suppression of deity for for you, to die for you, to take on a disadvantage to advantage you. Amen? Uh, The Lord would like a little more enthusiasm than that. Amen? Thank you. What do you have in your life that is a reflection of the Lord's sacrifice? Who do you have in your life that is a reflection of the Lord's sacrifice? That's right. You're looking at the right person, don't you? There they are, right there. November is the month of Thanksgiving, and it is probably a good time to express your gratitude toward the people in your life who have sacrificed. For you, because gratitude is the memory of the heart. It's always a pleasure to remember our Lord and His cross and to be grateful for everything He has done for us. Well, let's enjoy the elements. Obeying the Lord's command, we keep on celebrating Christ regularly by eating and drinking. We eat bread to remember who He is as a person, the one and only sovereign God of the universe. We drink wine to remember His work on the cross the voluntary sacrifice he made to deliver us from sovereignty to sin. And we remember with gratitude what God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ have done to save us. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 25 say this, The Lord Jesus Christ on the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Keep on doing this in remembrance of me. And when supper was ended, the Passover supper was ended, the Lord Jesus Christ took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, a new testament. Keep on doing this, and as often as you drink it, keep on drinking it, in remembrance of me. And so we choose to obey our Lord with this celebration. Let's keep on eating this bread, Let's keep on drinking this cup, and let's keep on doing both to remember the Lord. Let this celebration stir our hearts and minds with awe and with reverence and with gratitude. Let's keep on being transformed by the Lord's life, his death, his burial, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension to God the Father to a place of victory, his seating at the majesty's right hand, and by the nourishment we get from his word, which feeds our soul. 
As believers in Christ, we live our lives in the light of the Lord's sacrifice at the cross. And by sacrificing himself for us, he made us his possessions. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, You believers in Christ are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And June Murphy reminds us in song that we are God's property.
I like that song. Well, the closing moments of our lesson always give us an opportunity to remind people that God wants you. And what God wants from you is that you make the most important decision of your life. God gave you an amazing ability from the moment of birth. He gave you volition, which is the ability to choose. And you have the power to make your own decisions. You have the power of free will. You have the power of choice. What do you choose to believe about God? Many people have beliefs about God. A belief is an opinion or a conviction or a confidence in the existence of something that does not seem provable. Everything with God is provable. There is no need for blind faith with God. He reveals himself in ways that make sense to human beings. And if he didn't, what kind of God would he be? I'll tell you what kind of God he would be. He would be the kind of God that I would never want to worship. What would make him worthy of our worship? Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says this, For since the creation of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ's invisible attributes, his eternal power and his deity have been clearly seen by all mankind being understood through everything that has been made in the entire created universe, so that all mankind, especially those practicing ungodliness and unrighteousness as a lifestyle, unbelievers, are without excuse in the matter of knowing God. One of the things we always want to say is that, well, they didn't know. Well, people didn't know. People absolutely know and have rejected. Because God makes himself clear in every single thing. You should see some of the ways he makes himself clear in science. There's this thing called laminin. And there are people who have dedicated their whole life to study laminin, which is a substance in the body. And the substance laminin is, is shaped like a cross. And it has all the properties of the cross. So when they're studying it, there's no way that they wouldn't be able to make the connection between that and the real cross. That's how God is. He's so subtle, he's obvious. Now, Satan, the enemy of God, prefers that we have beliefs because he knows that there is a big difference between beliefs and the truth. And only when your beliefs and the truth are the same are your beliefs significant. Satan hates the truth. Why? Because he can't handle the truth. Do you choose to believe Satan, or do you choose to believe God? You only have two choices. And what many people believe is that they can impress God so much that he will let them into heaven because of their good deeds and their religious practices. So they give money to beggars. They give food to homeless. They are actively involved in the community. They generously donate their time, talent, and treasure to charitable organizations. They do what they call giving back. And you've heard that superficial term, give back, countless times, which most of the time is nothing more than a a publicity stunt for a little free PR. People who give back usually are convinced that they are good people, impressive to God because they give back. Many think they are so good that after they die, God will reward them by letting them into heaven for their good deeds. There's a former football player that I think of when I think of the idea of giving back. 
and he's a guy that you've never heard of. Uh, he was a running back for the Atlanta Falcons, and every year he buys a home for a, home, for a, a single mother. And he mentors them for a whole year so that they know how to take over this possession that he has given to them, and he makes sure that they're able to keep it. Because just because you give a goofy person something amazing, they will usually take their goofy mentality and ruin it within a year. That's why everybody who wins the lottery is broker than they were before they won the lottery three years later, because they take their goofy mentality and use the money. And they, they just give it away and abuse it. He makes sure that if that mentality exists in the person that he gifts, and he does a lot of vetting beforehand, he makes sure that they are able to take that on and to make it successful and had an amazing track record. The thing that's significant about him and his giving back is you never heard of the guy. Because he's not in the public trying to make it bring you know, glory to himself because of what he's doing. He just does an amazing thing every year and he has helped countless single mothers in this regard. There are a lot of people who think that just because they do that, they're going to get into heaven. The Bible, which is the owner's manual for life, tells a completely different story. Titus chapter 3, verse 5 says this, The Lord Jesus Christ saved us, believers in Christ, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in self-righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and through renewing by God the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 say this, For by God's grace you have been saved through faith in Christ for salvation. And that grace and that faith and that salvation are not from the source of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Ephesians 2, 9, So being saved is not as a result of your works, deeds you have done in self-righteousness, so that no one may boast about saving himself. The Bible directs all mankind to let God do the saving. And one thing you would never want is to put the burden of your salvation on your own back. So if you can't get into heaven from doing good deeds, what's the truth about how to get God to let you into heaven? Well, the one way to get into heaven, the only way to get to heaven is through the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 14, verse 6 says this, Jesus said to the doubting apostle Thomas, I am the way to salvation, I am the truth through the word of God, and I am the resurrection life, eternal life. And no one comes to God the Father in heaven, but through believing in me. The Apostle Paul described this amazing Messiah, the Christ, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. I, Paul, delivered to you as of first importance the gospel message which I also received when I got knocked off my high horse on the Damascus road. That Jesus Christ died for our sins according to Scripture, and that he was buried, and that he was raised from the dead on the third day according to the Scriptures. When you choose to believe that Jesus Christ is God, it is much more than a belief. It is the absolute truth. And when you choose to believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, it's more than a belief. It's the absolute truth. So how can you get to heaven? When you close your eyes in this life, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 say this, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, that he is God, and if you believe in your heart that God the Father will raise him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10, 10. 
For what the heart a person believes, resulting in the imputation of absolute righteousness by God, which is your admission ticket to heaven, and with the mouth a person confesses, admitting faith in Christ alone, resulting in salvation. So it is wise to let God save you, because once God does something, it can't be undone. God never changes his mind. So heed the warning in John chapter 3, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has the resurrection life right at that moment. It is not a future event. It's an instant occurrence with the result standing finished forever. But he who does not obey the command to believe in the Son will not see the resurrection life. Instead, the wrath of God, the lake of fire, abides on him. Matthew chapter 13, verses 40 to 42, describe hell as a literal place, not as a concept. Matthew chapter 13, verse 40. So just as the weeds are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. Matthew 13, 41. The Son of Man, Jesus Christ, will send forth his elect angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks, unbelievers, and those who commit lawlessness, unbelievers. Matthew 13, 42. And the elect angels will throw unbelievers into the furnace of fire, and in that place... There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And what is the weeping of gnash- and gnashing of teeth for? Because of the realization that they were evangelized to about a thousand times and they rejected it about a thousand times. You want to make the most important choice of your life? Have a great eternity by doing what's suggested in Acts chapter 16, verse 31. He who believes in the Lord Jesus, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved you and everyone in your household who also believes. John chapter 3, verse 17. God the Father did not send God the Son, the Lord, who took on the form of Jesus Christ, human form, did not send him into the world to judge the world, but God the Father sent God the Son into the world that the world might be saved through those who believe in him. So take the free gift of eternal life right now. There's no time to waste. God wants you. Why bother working for your salvation when, with good deeds when you can have salvation as a free gift? Let the Lord Jesus Christ work on the cross. Give back to you. All right, we'll close in song. John chapter 1, verse 12 says this, As many as received Jesus and his invitation to salvation, to them he gave the right to choose to become children of God the Father, even to whosoever believes in his name. Here's June Murphy singing one of her classic songs, Whosoever. is already won The Lord Jesus went to the cross Yes he did Dying voluntarily And he says No one comes to the Father But by believing in me 
Spirit, Son, work as one so all men can be saved. It's a choice you have to make, no mistake. Salvation's road is paved. The Lord Jesus died for you. Yes, it's true. On a cross, it's plain to see. And he says, no one comes to the Father. But by believing in me, come taste and see. Thank you, June. Uh, doxology of praise to our God is in Romans chapter 8, verses 37 to 39. In every situation imaginable, believers in Christ keep on overwhelmingly conquering through the Lord who, give, who loves us unconditionally. Romans chapter 8, verse 38. For I, Paul, am convinced that neither death nor life, nor elect angels who wouldn't, nor principalities, the demons, the fallen angels, who couldn't, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, 
nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to sever us, believers in Christ, from the unconditional love of God the Father, who is for us, through our union with Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us pray. Almighty God and Father, we just thank you for everything that you've given us. We thank you for the prosperity that you offer. We're also just as grateful for the tribulation. And if we're to go into a time in our society here in the United States where there's a great deal of tribulation, we go into it with confidence, knowing that if you're for us, no one can be against us, nothing can be successful against us, knowing that you value us as human beings and as believers in Christ more than you value sparrows. Yet the sparrows got up this morning and looked for breakfast and they found it because you provided it a billion years ago and it showed up today. And so we go forward into this life with confidence every day, one step at a time, one foot in front of the other, knowing that you are guiding our path and you are leading us to experience and see the victory that you laid out for us through Christ on the cross. And we pray that we are not self-focused. We pray that we look around us with spiritual eyes and we see people who are hurting and that we reach out to them intentionally, putting ourselves perhaps at human risk of rejection by sharing the gospel message and inviting people to believe in Christ because we know that there is no more important decision to make in this life than that one. And we ask that you especially give us the courage to do that with our relatives who we are very reluctant to suffer a rejection from. We ask this through the power of God, the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, say it with me. Amen. Amen. Thanks for coming, thanks for watching, and thanks for listening. Did you feel me? She felt me right there.